A quick look around and you get the sense the world is falling apart at the seams. So how do you respond as a believer in Christ? How do you live by faith in apostate times? That is the question we're answering the rest of this week as we turn our attention to the book of Ruth. There in Ruth, we find some answers to some of the challenges that we face today as believers in Christ. We invite you to join us here on Abounding Grace as our teacher and pastor Chris Gordon takes us to the book of Ruth. We'll be focusing in on the first 22 verses today, living by faith in apostate times. Boy, go back in time to get a current lesson for today, right? Here's Pastor Chris and today's program. Today we are uh, beginning uh, a new study in the book of Ruth. And I invite you to turn to uh, the book of Ruth, and we will be looking just at the first um, six verses, really verse five, but I'll read through verse six this morning of Ruth one. And to set up the story, uh, you'll see that in five verses, everything unravels terribly here. Uh, It's a dark moment in the story of Ruth, and that's what sets up the glory that is to come. And so that's the beauty of this, this, uh, this little book. There's so much here uh, to show us the person and the work of Christ. Um, but we have to walk through uh, the valley here at the beginning, this great and sad uh, difficulty that is presented to us in the life of Naomi. So we're going to read uh, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord, um, beginning here, Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, and given them food. And there we'll end the reading of God's Word. The book of Ruth is a, um, a fascinating little short book, uh, a fun book to study, an enjoyable book to study, because what it does is it shows us God's um, work of providence and care for his people in some of the darkest of all circumstances. It really is um, that point that is going to be made and shown here as we work through this book. It does something rather unique. The book setting comes in the time of the judges, and you can't miss that little inclusion by the author here. That is meant to be pondered and to be thought about and to be reflected upon. Uh, In the time of the judges, it captures something about the state of the times in which this book comes to us. Um, You'll know that 
the book of Judges, of course, provides us a sort of corporate view of Israel at the time, uh, the problems with Israel at the time, the need for a deliverer, but all of the corporate aspect, the larger um, body of Israel aspect is captured in the book of Judges. What's unique about Ruth is the book is set sometime in the period of the Judges and it zeroes in on a little family in Israel. And that's not an insignificant choice by the author. Uh, You'll notice it zeroes in on this particular family, a surprising family, a family that is in such a mess and in such difficulty that it meant to capture for us a snapshot more locally and individually and also family-wise into the nation of Israel and the spirit of the times in which the people lived. It's showing us the spiritual state of God's people zeroing in on this family. The treasure of this book is that it's meant to challenge us and it's meant to encourage us that God has always worked in the darkest moments of human history. God has always done surprising things in the darkest moments. In the moments, in the darkest of situations, where in the worst of situations, in the smallest of situations, in the most insignificant of situations, we see God's powerful providence at work and his powerful plan being enacted and fulfilled. When there is an absolute bleak outlook on life, in a place of great obscurity, in a place of great darkness, light shines. Light shines. And this is uh, where we are as we enter this little story uh, of, of Ruth for, uh, you can't help but to say that the same sort of discouragement fills our times. It fills Christians. It fills those who are living in hope and expectation of the good things to come but see no light in the present. That this book is a great encouragement and help to us to show the grand story and the grand plan of God's deliverance and help to his people. What this book is going to show us is how God makes light to shine out of darkness and to see how great that darkness can be in contrast with how great his light is that comes upon us. This morning we're only looking at really the first five verses, somewhat into six, but I want you to notice here the outline is simple as you're, as we're looking at this. You're going to notice here there's a great trial that is presented right at the front of this in the first few verses were, were hit quickly with a lot of deep blows upon this family. And then we're, um, we're going to look at the great trial, the great tragedy, and then the great triumph, anticipating somewhat of what is to come because you can't just leave it here in this dark moment without getting to some hope here. And that's the note we're going to end on. The trial, the tragedy, and the triumph. We enter this book at a surprising juncture in Israel's history. Notice verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. This is not just a statement to pass right over. Uh, It's giving us a key to understand this and to interpret this. The author is very uh, plain here, and he wants us to fill in the gaps. You have to fill in the gaps. You can't do this without filling in the gaps. It's a loaded first verse. It's capturing for us the spirit 
of the times. Most likely, as those uh, scholars say, this was written in the time between the judges Ehud and Jephthah. That's the sort of general rule and general accepted truth of when this was written. One of the darkest times, of course, in Israel's history. Very significant for the book. Everyone was doing what? Well, we know. Twice in the book of Judges, not only in chapter 17, but again, to make the point, testimony of two witnesses here, the very end of the book of Judges, we have this powerful statement that's made. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It's the very end of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone. No king. Everyone lived life as if the Lord didn't exist. You ever thought about how significant a statement that is for it to be said of Israel? It's a remarkable statement. Uh, There's a statement that, it's a statement saying that the Lord was completely rejected and forgotten about and left out of the social and religious life of Israel. He was forgotten. He was forgotten. And this is the sort of place in which we we live. Um, This is the place, the times in which we live, and also the place in which we find ourselves in this book. Um, It's not so surprising to me that we would come, and if God had said, uh, to the, about the nations of the world, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Would that ever be a surprise to us? The surprise of this is, is that it's God's people who were living this way. God's people had forgotten. The people of the covenant. The people who had seen all the wonders of, his, of God of Israel deliver them from out of the land of Egypt. The people who had, as we looked at last time, the memorials in front of them. To remember all of God's great works. God had been with his people. God had delivered his people. God had always helped his people. How do you get to a place like this? And thus we enter the book of Ruth at this dark moment. Uh, In chapter 2 of Judges we read the children. Listen to this. Of this characterization of the times of Judges. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and forsook the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed to them and provoked the Lord to anger. You have statements in Judges like they turned quickly from the Lord. They departed quickly from the Lord. They did not cease from their doings or their stubborn ways, it says. This was the long history of Israel and how they treated the Lord, wasn't it? No repentance. Little change of heart. Rejection of the Lord until things started going really badly and finally they they would call out and he would send deliverers. He would send judges. Serving their own hearts. Probably one of the most apostate times in Israel's history. We really don't see the full turnaround that I would like to see until 1 Samuel 7, where a great judge, the last of the great judges, was sent, Samuel. And then we see in 1 Samuel 7, the Ebenezer stone and the sacrificing of a lamb. And the people, after years, it says, 20 years, they they return to the Lord with all their hearts. 
So it's, it's no small statement when you open up Ruth and you read in the very next breath, there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. You remember um, in the Old Testament, under what we call a theocracy, um, when the covenant people, when, when things were not going well, <laughs> uh, when they had rejected the Lord with these kinds of rejections, they had come under the covenant curses. The covenant curses. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. Listen to this carefully, and it sets up the, the book here. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. The people were under them right now. The curses had fallen on the land and on them. Now, this is the setting. This is the setting to which the book comes to us. And so we have this interesting inclusion right at the beginning. We zero in now on this family in Israel, an obscure family, a family that's somewhat surprising to us. Who are these people? Why in the world would God choose them? And already we're being sort of provoked. God's setting something up for us. He's setting something up. Notice it. A certain man of Bethlehem, that's not an insignificant city, is it? A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab and his wife and his two sons. What's challenging uh, with the book of Ruth, what's challenging as an expositor and a preacher is, like I said before, you have to fill in the gaps here. You have to do it to, to get to a real point here. We're left to do that. And there are hints that are given to us to help us to make the right choice and where to go with this. The man's name was Elimelech, the wife of, you'll notice that the name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem. That last uh, description, Ephrathites, is very important uh, the way to describe them was to describe them as the author is doing as people of kind of status in Israel. They were big names in Israel. They were, a, they were a family name in Israel. They were of the first families in Bethlehem. They were what some have noticed are aristocrats. One pastor said, the Vanderbilts, however, had suddenly become sharecroppers. This is exactly what's happened. This well-to-do family in Bethlehem, a very uh, prestigious family, a good, well-known family, had done very well in the land, all of a sudden had come on very hard times. The text is teasing us somewhat with the names on purpose. Elimelech. You know what that name means? Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king. The Lord is king. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. 
What a moment. A man named Yahweh's king, and, and remember, when Israelites named their names, they didn't just do it to sound cool with the times like we do. I had many people ask me as a pastor, why did you name your children this or that and not a biblical name? And I just kind of dropped my, I have no idea why I did it. I don't know. I agree. It was a hip thing to do at the moment. It's not what Israelites did. It captured the, 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 the times. Parents were capturing things. They were capturing uh, what they were experiencing. They were, this was a sort of testimony of things. Terrible circumstance here. Yahweh is king. And you, you're, you're teased with the, with, by the author to say, oh, is this a godly man or not? Is this a good man or not? Is it just a name that he bears his religion? Was it just passed to him from dad and grandpa, but he doesn't really embrace it? Or does he really embrace it? Important questions, isn't it, for Israel? Because as we know, generations departed easy from the Lord. Covenant people. And then you have the names of the sons. Malon and Chilion both have negative connotations. Malon, uh, the, 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 the scholars have all pointed this out. That probably means to be weak and sick, and Kilion means to pine away. Huh. So terrible circumstances are upon us here. You have no food. Your children are wasting away. You've captured that in the way that you've, you've named them. But you hear over in Moab that there's food. It's lush and it's plentiful over there. You don't have to deal with all this hardship. So the next thing you read is that they, they pack up with just one stroke of a pen. The author says they packed up and they went to Moab. They went and they sojourned in Moab. Was that to stay for a while and then come back? Was it to stay permanently? Is this a good choice? You see, we're all being, we're being teased by these questions and the author's not telling us, which, is, which sort of is intended to leave the, the, the listener on the edge of his seat. Did you know there's a place called Moab, Utah, I've wanted to go? Yeah, you can ride doom buggies and ride all those things. Is it wrong to do that? To flee our circumstances? You see, all these things come together. All these thoughts. When you start to ask the right questions, though, it becomes a little more clear. Was it okay to leave the promised land? Due to famine? What about the Moabites, you know? What about those people? They were the immediate neighbors to the west, and you think about the Moabites that came into the existence. You know how the Moabites came about, of course. It came from Lot and his daughters in the cave. That was a bad situation, ugly situation. It was the Moabite leader, Balak, who hired Balaam to curse the sons of Israel. And then, of course, how all their women were seduced into harlotry with the, uh, the, the men were with the Moabite women. Nothing ever good came out of Moab. This was Israel's enemy throughout history. <laughs> their enemy. And if you understand the instructions given to Israel, you can, you can tease this out a little more. Um, the people probably should have cut them off. Um, remember when they entered the land. Weren't they commanded to do so? They were a thorn in their side. 
Now, all of this is starting to present a little bit of a clearer picture for us. Elimelech had come to one of the greatest choices of life. Uh, those choices that, you know, at the beginning, you say of the sermon here, and at the, as we think about the issues here, this would have dire consequences either way. What would be the consequences of this choice? The name Malon and Kilion captured, though, his real pain. Didn't it? His children are hurting. There was no seeking of the Lord, was there? I think that should be the stark omission here. Where is the Lord sought? Where was the calling upon the Lord's name recorded? It always was when God's people returned. You know, they say right now that Christianity is dying in the West. The decline among God's peoples everywhere. And you can see it in the spirit of the people. What has happened to Christians in the time in which we live as the culture has turned on us? A lot of discouragement. A lot of giving up hope. And is there a lot of calling out to the Lord in prayer? Not much. Who's gathering in families around the table troubled about the times that they complain about? What's happening to churches right now? The trend is clear. It's a time of great spiritual decline among us. This would be a time in which they would say, in Israel's time, as the book is captured right from the beginning, the Lord doesn't seem to be involved much in Israel. The darkness of the people is evident. Where is the repentance? Where's the turning to him? The consequences of the darkness that has come upon them are seen now, as I think the book is teasing us to see, in the choices that are being made. The way that families are being led. The way the values that were once there are gone in Israel. You can apply that. Sure, you can apply that. The Lord is not consulted. In an old covenant context, now listen to me. This is the verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's not America. That's old covenant Israel in the land. If you're ever going to apply that to today, apply it to the holy nation, which is the church. Are my people calling out to my name? I'll strengthen their churches again, <laughs> corporately. Have they made my worship a show and forgotten me? Apply it. What we need from an aristocrat whose name means God is king is someone with this kind of clout, someone with this kind of influence to lead the people in repentance to the Lord. And remember that God promised the land of them forever. 
This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Chris Gordon. Let me remind you that you can get copies of today's program, and you can learn more about us, and you can do it all online. Our website is a great place to start, agradio.org. It's there that you can learn more about us, find out who Pastor Chris is and what he does when he's not on the broadcast. You can also contact us with questions, comments, prayer requests, or if you would like to get a copy of today's program, they're available online, and you can reach us again at agradio.org. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 888-504-8805. That's 888-504-8805. We're also available on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure you stop by agradio.org to find the link for all of these formats. Abounding Grace Radio, by the way, exists on this radio station because you believe in it and you find value in it and you direct some of your financial resources our way along with your prayers. We would ask you to continue to do that. No gift is too small. No gift is too big. Contact us today. Let us know how you're partnering with us financially and prayerfully. Again, thank you for taking some of your valuable time and directing it our way. It's greatly appreciated, and we trust you've been encouraged in Christ. Until next time, God bless. Abounding Grace is brought to you on this radio station by Abounding Grace Radio Ministries. Hi, this is Chris Gordon, pastor of the Escondido United Reformed Church. I'd like to invite you to our Sunday worship services at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. on Sunday. We have two worship services, 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. We preach Christ and Him crucified with the goal that you would live in the joy of this comfort in the knowledge of the forgiveness of all of your sins. 1864 North Broadway is the address here in Escondido. We'd love to see you this Sunday.